Hello, and welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm Camden Bird, and I am with Ramya Swayamprakash. Who is shockingly back in the U.S. Uh, welcome back. Thank you, after a long exile in Canada, which I wasn't complaining about, mind you. Um, we actually recorded this uh, this interview uh, while I was in the middle of in Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we're living in the global age, you know, and these podcasts can break down boundaries and borders. That's There's nothing, no question about that. I mean, they definitely can, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and today we're speaking with Josiah Rector, who is a associate professor of history at the University of Houston. Um, his work focuses on 20th century U.S. urban, environmental, and labor history. Um, he received his PhD from Wayne State and has published articles in the Journal of American History, Modern American History, and Labor Studies in Working Class History, of the Americas, as well as a chapter in A People's Atlas of Detroit. Uh, he joined us to talk about his book, Toxic Debt and Environmental Justice History of Detroit, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2022. So Camden, what kinds of things stood out to you about the book? Um, what I really enjoyed about this conversation with Josiah was, I was just impressed with the book and its scope to do sort of a long history of environmental injustice in Detroit, which changes perhaps our perspective or sort of the popular understandings of environmentalism, the environmental movement and environmental injustice from not a recent phenomenon, but in fact, you know, um, a history that has deep roots in the mm -hmm. very um, beginnings of uh, Detroit as a city. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for that sense, there's a lot of um, methodological tools that we can pull from this work mm -hmm. to think about the Midwest, cities in the Midwest, but any, really any community in the Midwest mm -hmm. to think about long histories of place. So for that reason, I really enjoyed this conversation. Can't recommend this book enough. What about you? And for me, it was the sort of relationship between sort of financial debt and ecological debt, right? Um, and how that sort of builds on marginalization and minoritization. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that how that's emboldened by urban policies and politics. Mm -hmm. Right. So and so the long history sort of gives you this really wide and deep view of what's been happening and what has happened in Detroit. But also that, you know, like you pointed out, Detroit is not an anomaly. It's rather mm -hmm. the rule. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so sort of it, it helps us expand beyond the Midwest, uh, but just as somebody who studies a river by the same name, um, it, it's great because I think it sort of uh, decenters the the interest that, you know, we've often had with the city itself, but rather sort of gets into the other connections that we don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Especially as somebody who, you know, in 2013, when I was still in India, the Detroit, you know, filing for bankruptcy was this thing of how does a city go bankrupt right and mm -hmm. and this this book sort of shows you that it there was probably there's probably a teleology to it more than just a chronology right and so that's really interesting to me and i can't say this enough it's a it's a well-written book that's mm -hmm. not a gajillion pages long like you'll finish <laughs> it in your lifetime Right. Which yeah. which is always my sort of hesitance with with long history. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to be so long. I'm probably going to be retired and half dead by the time I finish. Um, <laughs> but this isn't like that. Right. It's readable. It's accessible. And it's not ridiculously long. So. Yeah. I agree. And, 
Congratulations. And, and congratulations to you, Ramya, for thinking about the reality of retirement someday. That's just simply not in my head. So that's incredible. I think it's just my socialist roots, you know, because India is a socialist country. <laughs> it's just that. Love it. Before we jump into the podcast, um, just a reminder, I'm sure everyone is quickly making their plans for the annual meeting of the Midwestern History Conference, which of course is meeting in Ramya's backyard, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, May 30 through May 31st. So we'll be there. Literally. Um, all right. Well, uh, anything else? No, no. Just let's begin. <laughs> let's begin. Well, uh, Josiah, thank you so much for joining us here on Heartland History. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's just jump in. Um, in the opening pages of your book, you write that um, you're demonstrating that race, class, and gender inequalities and exposure to environmental hazards in Detroit have risen and fallen in different historical periods as a result of changes in the political, economic, and in public policies uh, over that period of time. Uh, the book opens with a very recent example of a temporary moratorium on shutting off water to homes in Michigan in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a halt on a policy that had overwhelmingly affected lower income and black residents in the city. But this is not necessarily a, a recent history. Environmental inequality has always existed in Detroit, while its manifestations have adapted and changed over time. Uh, in order to understand 2020, you suggest we need to go back, uh, a lot further back. So I guess the first question I have for you is, is really two in one. First, uh, you know, what led you to examine the long history of environmental inequalities uh, and injustices in Detroit? And second, how does this long view of Detroit shift our understanding of the modern city? Thanks, Ken. That's a great question. So the simple answer to the first one is I went to graduate school um, at Wayne State University. Um, so I studied history under Elizabeth Fowle, um, a noted labor historian. Um, and I happened to be in Detroit doing a history PhD during the time period from 2010 to 2017, which coincided with the city's bankruptcy, the subprime mortgage meltdown, the Great Recession, and the events of the Flint water crisis, and also a major fight over water shutoffs in the city of Detroit. So my interest in these subjects was very much shaped by that context, by what was going on in Detroit in the 20 teens. Um, and I was already interested in the history of the environmental justice movement. So I actually did a master's thesis at Wayne State in 2012, looking at anti-toxics activism in the United Auto Workers Union. And I did oral history interviews with UAW activists who had fought for compensation uh, and prevention of occupational cancers caused by exposure to toxic chemicals in auto factories. So I was interested in the UAW environmental justice already, but I wanted to do a dissertation, which would later become my book on the history of the environmental justice movement in Detroit. So I was reading classic works like Robert Bullard's Dumping in Dixie. Um, and I noticed that these works were very revealing and they had lots of parallels with Detroit. They tended to focus on fence line communities, so-called people living near toxic waste dumps, incinerators, oil refineries. 
And of course, we know that these people are disproportionately people of color and low income from decades of environmental justice scholarship. And there are obvious parallels in Detroit, right? You had people living, for example, near this huge municipal incinerator at Russell and Ferry for decades that closed in 2019. Or you have people living near the Marathon Refinery and the zip code, zip code 48217. So those places fit into the sort of research framework created by scholars like Robert Bullard really well. But what I found was that the existing environmental justice scholarship didn't help me in some ways explain what was going on with the Flint water crisis or the shutoffs in Detroit. So certainly uh, those phenomena can be described using an environmental justice framework. You have disproportionately people of color, low-income people either being deprived of water or exposed to poison water, causing major health problems. But at the same time, the water shutoffs and the poison water don't come from a single uh, toxic facility or a single industrial facility, and they can't be explained by a single siting decision, right? These are problems that are dispersed across an entire metro area. And rather than being traceable to a single corporation or government regulators uh, and pollution from a certain facility, these problems stem from larger issues like poverty, cuts in welfare services, municipal debt, and austerity policies. So to understand the water crisis in Michigan, I wanted to expand beyond the standard kind of fence line community study framework to look at the larger causes of environmental injustice. And that led me to examine how finance and debt specifically can be mechanisms of environmental injustice. Um, so, so that explains why I wrote what I wrote one more thing just about the benefits of a long-term perspective. So a lot of this environmental justice scholarship is produced by social scientists, particularly sociologists like Robert Bullard. And much of this work focuses on recent events. Mm -hmm. Although some scholars like uh, David Pillow and Dorsita Taylor have done really great studies from a kind of historical sociological perspective, looking at environmental inequality formation over longer periods of time. But most environmental justice scholarship, including most of what existed on Detroit, certainly before just a few years ago, focused on very recent events. So as a historian, I wanted to bring a longer term perspective to the table, both to provide a more in-depth understanding of the movement and where the movement comes from, looking at histories of activism prior to the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to look at the longer term backdrop to things like water shutoffs, lead poisoning. And I make the case in the book that a long term perspective helps us understand um, the causes of those problems. And it, and it allows us to see parallels and differences between recent crises and crises in earlier periods of the city's history, which I think helps us explain the causation, possible policy alternatives, and the like. Yeah. And, you know, your first chapter takes us back to the Gilded Age, uh, when, as you write, Detroit industrialized and the, quote, uh, the gap between in living and working conditions between the business elite and the middle class dominated by native-born white Protestants and the immigrant and black working class um, widened, end quote. What did this look like in Detroit and how did this come about? Yeah, thanks, Ramya. So the period that I focus on in the first chapter is primarily the late 19th century. So I'm mostly looking at the time period that historians often call the Gilded Age in the U.S. So, you know, this is the age of the so-called robber barons, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Vanderbilt. And this is a period when across the United States in general, you have a dramatic widening of the gap between the rich and poor. The economy is becoming more productive through the so-called second uh, industrial revolution. There's a lot of technological advancement, but there's a conspicuous 
growing divide between the rich and the poor. And you have worsening problems of air and water pollution in cities in general, not just Detroit. So you have worsening smoke pollution caused by industrialization and the reliance on coal as the major energy source. You have worsening water pollution because of the lack of sewage treatment in this time period. And you also have rapid population growth and often very inadequate municipal services worsened by problems like corruption and so forth. Um, and this has also appeared when the city's demographics are really changing because it's before the first great migration of African-Americans to the urban north. So you had a small African-American population that dates back to the 18th century. I highly recommend folks read Taya Miles' book, The Dawn of Detroit, on the longer history of African-Americans in Detroit. But in the late 19th century, um, you have a lot of immigrants coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. There had been sort of waves of Irish and German immigration in particular earlier in the 19th century. And it continues on into the 1870s, 1880s, but increasingly you have a lot of Poles, Italians, uh, you know, Croatian, Hungarian, Russian immigrants and the like. And you have a kind of a spatial divide within the Gilded Age city between areas that are more affluent, predominantly Anglo, uh, native-born whites with relatively better infrastructure, relatively better air quality. And then you have predominantly immigrant and to a lesser extent African-American neighborhoods, mostly on the east side of the city, the southeastern area, sort of south of Hamtramck in particular, where you have a lot of open sewers, you have a lot of uncollected trash, and you have some of the highest rates of infectious disease. And people, you know, often people living in like um, shanty towns and alleyways and, and kind of informal housing. You know, you have the Gilded Age city is increasingly unequal, it's very dirty, and there's a lot of corruption. And so you have these reformers like Mayor Hayes and Pingree who come along and try to address the problems, but there's pretty limited success prior to the progressive era and especially prior to the new deal because of the sort of fiscal uh, constraints of local government, as well as the fact that the city simply can't afford to you know, construct, for example, sewage treatment prior to the new deal era. What I really enjoyed about the book is how you tie um, a financial history of Detroit, uh, in particular the use of debt. Uh, and how closely tied that is to the environmental history of the of the city. Uh, you note that early efforts to treat things such as, as you noted, sort of tuberculosis, which requires water treatment and toxic air pollution, right? These things require city funds in order to hire smoke abatement officers and to build sewers. In many cases, right, this requires using bonds and thus taking on debt to pay for these things. Uh, even in the early decades of the 20th century, auto manufacturers were seeking to move out of the city to dodge taxes. Uh, this is a tenuous balance that collapses during the Great Depression. You write that, quote, between 1929 and 1933, the city's tax base collapsed. Its debt skyrocket, skyrocketed and the city faced default. Um, you continue to note that, uh, quote, the takeoff of the automobile industry thus created environmental, economic, social pro and social problems that, uh, that Detroit could not fix within the constraints of liberal Fordist capitalism. How did liberal Fordist capitalism create new disparities in the city? And how did the Great Depression further reveal the fragility of those structures? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I this may sound like a lot of jargon, but I just want to clarify what I mean here by liberal Fordist capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Fordism is generally used to refer to the sort of assembly line production methods associated with the Ford Motor Company, particularly in the early 20th century. But it's also sometimes used to describe a kind of a, a relatively high wage, high consumption 
um, economic model in which famously auto workers could afford to purchase the cars that they were producing, which was often not the case, for example, during the Gilded Age. Um, so if you look at Detroit in the first three decades of the 20th century, it's rapidly growing. The population doubles in size, it triples in land area. And the powerhouse at the center of that, as everybody knows, is the auto industry, right? And you have these huge auto factories opening up. You know, the, you have the Packard plant opening in 1903 on East Grand Boulevard. It's this 10,000 square foot factory. Uh, you have Ford's Highland Park assembly plant opening in 1910. And this is the first factory to use the moving assembly line in auto manufacturing. And then, of course, the much larger Ford River Rouge complex completed in 1927, 1928, um, which is the world's biggest factory. So Detroit is sort of the headquarters of global Fordism in this period. And, you know, this is... Um, a mass production complex, which is astounding in its productivity. It creates millions of cars. It generates these huge fortunes uh, for industrialists and bankers. This is a period when you have these Art Deco skyscrapers going up in Detroit during the building boom of the 1920s. The city's the fourth biggest in America. You have workers coming from all over the world. You have this great migration of African-Americans, over 100,000 African-Americans coming from the South to the North in the 19-teens and 20s. European immigration is starting to slow down because of World War One and then the restrictive immigration laws of the 20s. But still, huge numbers of people are drawn to Detroit because it's a magnet for jobs and growth. Right. And um, so there are negative externalities to the growth. Of course, there's no real environmental regulations in, the, in this period. There are municipal smoke ordinances, but they're very weakly enforced mm -hmm. and air pollution is increasing because you have, you know, the factories and residential buildings are still largely using coal. And then, of course, you have automobiles, which are also a new air pollution source that is not really regulated in this period. And you have more and more uh, sewage being poured into the Detroit River. I think there are 50 open sewers spewing raw sewage into the Detroit River by the early 20th century. Um, so basically, city leaders, civic leaders take out a lot of debt from Wall Street banks to build out infrastructure to accommodate industrial and population growth in this period. So they take out bonds and they use the bonds to finance the construction of roads, uh, sewer lines, water lines, and so forth. And they assume basically that the city is going to keep growing and then they can pay down the debt with continuously rising tax revenues. But as we know, in 1929, there's a stock market crash leading to the Great Depression. The auto industry falls off a cliff, uh, sales decline. And in response to that, auto manufacturers like Ford lay off around half their workers. And so the city's tax base uh, collapses, right? Um, and at the same time, the social needs multiply. You have a huge uh, increase in the number of unemployed people, an increase in the number of homeless people. At the very moment when the city is seeing declining tax revenues from fall and business activity and so forth. And this leads the city into a huge fiscal crisis uh, with the Great Depression. So basically what I argue is that Fordism doesn't end with the Great Depression. Fordism will continue arguably until the 70s. I mean, we can debate what Fordism is, but if we're thinking in terms of this kind of mass production model, it continues on. But what happens in the, in the period from 1933 to 1935 or so is the New Deal um, inaugurates what some scholars call regulated capitalism. You go from a kind of more of a liberal model of capitalism characterized by rampant stock market speculation, which is totally unregulated, not much of a welfare state, um, not much in the way of workers' rights, to a system where you have a welfare state, relatively powerful labor unions, banking regulations, which restrict speculation, um, and federal aid to cities, which 
um, among other things, makes things like municipal bankruptcy less likely. So the New Deal makes capitalism more regulated and Fordism continues within this more regulated framework beginning with the Great Depression, or, or excuse me, beginning with the New Deal in response to the Great Depression. Yeah, and throughout your book, uh, but especially in the first half, you emphasize how water was important as a tool for environmental injustice. Um, it was striking to read about the Michigan Stream Control Commission, which later became the Michigan Water Resources Commission, um, a body whose work um, I have encountered a lot in the state archives, um, but I've, I've read really very little outside in terms of secondary literature. Um, so it was really interesting to see how um, the work and regulatory power of the MWRC uh, was hamstrung in a border river um, like the Detroit, despite the presence of a body like the International Joint Commission. Um, often the complexity of environmental regulation in a borderland um, with competing domestic regulatory ambitions and interests, in addition to binational ones, uh, is lost. And it's hard to understand how you know creating change is much harder than it looks. Um, so how does the political border intersect with local, regional, and state bodies as well as binational ones? Thanks, Ramya. Yeah, that's also a great question. So it took me some time to sort out this sort of confusing alphabet soup of regulatory <laughs> agencies uh, when I was researching my dissertation and, and later my book. So it's very easy to get bewildered by the sort of complexity of all these different levels of government, you know, because, yeah, in, in the context of the Detroit River, you're obviously dealing with the U.S.-Canadian border. You're also dealing with the state of Michigan. You're dealing with the city of Detroit. You're dealing with the city of Windsor across the river and numerous other municipalities. Um, which have pollution that is flowing into the river, or they're you know using water from Detroit, which is partly taken from the Detroit River. So I think there's actually a pretty simple story, though, that you can tell about the history of environmental regulation um, regarding water pollution in the Detroit River in the 20th century. And it goes something like this. So in the 19th century, there's essentially no regulation of water pollution in the Detroit River. The river is getting more polluted primarily because of raw sewage being dumped from the city's sewers, mostly from the U.S. side, less from the Canadian side, because the population is mostly on the U.S. side. Um, and there's some industrial water pollution, too, but it's mostly from the sewers. People can try to sue polluters under the common law of nuisance, but this is an ineffective way of handling most forms of water pollution. And there's no real framework for resolving cross-boundary water pollution disputes between the U.S. and Canada. And actually, as I shown the first chapter, there's some Canadian First Nations like the Ojibwe of Walpole Island who object to U.S. territorial claims in the river. And they can't do anything about that either. But certainly in terms of environmental claims, there's no mechanism for resolving them. Then the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 creates the International Joint Commission. And in theory, the International Joint Commission should create a framework for addressing U.S.-Canadian water pollution disputes. Like, for example, Canadian fishermen are complaining all the time about sewage from the Detroit side driving away their catches. They don't like it. But the uh, IJC is very limited. The main sources of water pollution are land-based. They're mostly municipal sewers and also factories and other kinds of runoff. But the IJC has no regulatory authority over land-based pollution sources. It does studies that increase pressure to do something, but basically it only has power uh, over vessels and pollution from vessels in the river. Uh, so the IJC can't do much. The Michigan Stream Commission, which you mentioned, has no real power. Um, the, the state of Michigan essentially um, issues various notices um, that encourage 
managers of factories to try to limit their effluent to some extent, but it's very weak and there are no enforceable state water quality standards. Um, there, there, there's very little of this before the 1960s. So the IJC is weak. The state laws are very weak. Canadians have very little recourse for resolving their pollution disputes with the U.S. When you get uh, the, the first sewage treatment plant built in Detroit in the 1940s, that does reduce the sewage pollution somewhat, but it reduces it by maybe half. But it's really not until the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency during the Nixon administration in the 1970s and the passage of the Clean Water Act in 1972 that cities like Detroit are required to institute so-called secondary sewage treatment. Um, which means that, you know, the, the, that in addition to making drinking water safe, they also have to sharply cut their release of sewage into waterways like the Detroit River. And even then, after the Clean Water Act, it takes well over another decade for the city to complete sewage treatment or secondary sewage treatments until the 1980s. And there are, you know, decades of, of further litigation. So what I would say is that the real turning point is with 1972, but after the Clean Water Act, it still takes decades for the city to finance it. And the, the, you have litigation going on well into the 21st century between the city of Detroit and the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, the, the Canadian government also tries to sue the city of Detroit multiple times over some kinds of pollution, like, for example, to try to block the Detroit incinerator, which was an air pollution concern for people in Windsor. Um, and they did succeed in um, putting some pressure on the city to address things like mercury pollution. But... Mm -hmm. With regard to water pollution, I think the, the key turning point is with the EPA and the Clean Water Act. Heading back to the New Deal, though, right, and the various government programs, um, which had profound impacts on Detroit, sort of, as you hinted you know, earlier. Um, this is a, a mixed legacy of sorts, right? You write, quote, while the New Deal policies improve public health in Detroit, they also exacerbated environmental inequalities. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about this in, in and discuss how those problems would continue to shape life in Detroit over the next several decades, even. Yeah, thanks. So I try to make a nuanced argument about the New Deal in my book, arguing that it had positive and negative consequences, right? So on the positive side, um, the New Deal inaugurates federal aid to cities, and New Deal federal aid enables Detroit to avoid bankruptcy in 1933. I mean, it's, it's partly the Banking Act of 1933, but it's also... Um, aid to cities and things like infrastructure projects, which enable the city to put this huge number of unemployed people back to work, improving the city's infrastructure, rebuilding the water and sewer pipes, building roads, um, and ultimately constructing the first sewage treatment plant, which will, you know, reduce sewage pollution in the river um, and help to, you know, eliminate the vestiges of these infectious diseases like typhoid that had really dogged the city throughout the 19th century. Um, you know, the New Deal, uh, the WPA sends workers into hospitals and they do important public health work. And of course, the, the struggles of the auto workers to unionize the auto industry take advantage of some of the laws passed under the New Deal, like the National Labor Relations Act, to ultimately sign these contracts with big corporations like GM and Ford and Chrysler, which will result ultimately in higher wages, healthcare benefits for workers. And that is beneficial for public health. So that's all I would argue positive from a public health perspective. On the negative side, um, the New Deal has major shortcomings, particularly in the area of civil rights and discrimination. So uh, if you look at New Deal housing policy, in addition to the sort of um, municipal fiscal crisis, you had a foreclosure crisis where 
All these people who had taken out mortgages during the 1920s economic boom can no longer make their mortgage payments and they're getting foreclosed on by banks. Right. And you also have people who are being evicted because they can't pay their rent by their landlords. So <clears throat> you have housing legislation that is passed in 1933, 1934, that creates the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the Federal Housing Administration. And basically the HOLC and the FHA um, uh, subsidize mortgages and they the HLC in particular enables thousands of people in Detroit alone to refinance their mortgages. Um, and in particular, they're able to negotiate uh, basically longer repayment terms with lenders. So under the, the FHA and the HLC, people can take out these 30 year mortgages um, and they can refinance with the banks, which allows people to keep their homes. And ultimately, the FHA will subsidize uh, this huge expansion in home ownership, particularly after World War II, when there's this big building boom. But the FHA and the HOLC incorporate racially discriminatory appraisal and lending policies into their mortgage programs. And the reason they do it is basically the real estate industry in the 1920s and 1930s uh, had already institutionalized racial segregation as a kind of uh, a with what many of them viewed as a best business practice. I mean, these were basically white male businessmen with racist attitudes who came out of the real estate industry. So these are real estate bankers and brokers. And most of them uh, believed that racial segregation was a good thing. And they had racist attitudes about African-Americans and various immigrant groups. They thought that they lowered property values and they thought that um, they should not receive loans to move into segregated white neighborhoods because that supposedly endangered white property values. So these are the people who ran the FHA and the HOLC. And so they enacted policies like redlining, where basically areas, any area that was not all native born whites received a lower credit rating. And if an area had African-American residents that received the lowest credit rating from the FHA, no, actually, a significant number of African-Americans did get home loans through the FHA and the HOLC, but the HOLC and the FHA only gave African-Americans home loans to live in segregated black neighborhoods. And they basically would not give African-Americans loans to move to the suburbs or into all white neighborhoods. Also, they endorsed the use of racially discriminatory restrictive covenants, which barred the sale of homes to African-Americans in something like 90 percent of the housing units in Detroit in the 30s and 40s. So basically, African-Americans were not allowed to live anywhere except a few um, ghettoized neighborhoods like Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. So there's only a handful of inner city neighborhoods where African-Americans are allowed to buy homes or rent properties. Also, the racist attitudes are really widespread among white homeowners. And when African-Americans try to move out of the inner city, they often face cross burnings and racist mob violence. Right. So basically, New Deal housing policy ensures that African-Americans are ghettoized and restricted to the inner city. And this will continue on into the 50s and 60s until the Fair Housing Act. So how does that contribute to environmental inequality? It basically means that African-Americans are concentrated in the worst housing in the metropolitan area. Right. So by 1967, Detroit is something like 40 percent African-American population wise. But about 80 percent of the residents of substandard housing are African-American. So African-Americans are concentrated in ramshackle apartment buildings and rundown housing, which often are fire hazards. They often have peeling lead paint. Newer homes in the periphery and in the suburbs are less likely to have lead paint, whereas older homes in the inner city are more likely to have lead paint. So you have higher rates of lead poisoning among children in these communities. You also have, uh, you know, bed bugs and cockroaches all over the place and other kinds of pests. 
um, which contribute to things like respiratory disorders. So African-Americans are, are harmed by their concentration in substandard housing because of these sort of racist housing policies that were sanctioned by the federal government as well as the private real estate industry. Um, and then the other side to this is labor. So uh, I mentioned before how auto workers had to fight for years to try to unionize the auto industry. The auto employers did not want unions in the factories, but the auto workers through years and years of struggle, we're able to finally uh, compel the automakers to sign contracts, you know, through things like sit down strikes and, 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 and other labor uh, militancy. So between 1937 and 1941, the big three automakers are unionized. The auto, United Auto Workers signed these contracts. Uh, however, prior to the civil rights era, um, there were no real effective um, anti-discrimination measures uh, in employment, right? And this included in the auto industry. In the auto industry, traditionally, automakers had sent particularly black men to work in the most hazardous jobs. So black men were, I think, nine times as likely as white men at Ford, for example, to be sent to work in the foundry. And this meant they were more exposed to air pollution in the workplace because these are the areas where there's the most dust and, and fumes and toxic chemicals in, for example, the Fort Rouge complex. The most polluted area of the Rouge is the foundry. That's where the black men are set to work, right? The New Deal doesn't really change that. So you get these union contracts, which do increase wages, they increase pension benefits, but they don't really effectively address the question of discrimination. Uh, prior to the affirmative action era in the early 1970s, African-Americans were largely, not completely, but largely excluded from the skilled trades, which are the higher paying, better jobs in the auto plants. And, uh, you know, they're still concentrated disproportionately in these jobs where there's poor air quality. And that means that black men have the highest rates of certain occupational diseases in Detroit auto factories, right? Like silicosis and so forth. Um, and, and prior to the creation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the EPA, there are no regulations really on air quality in workplaces. And this means that, uh, you know, you have a lot of people with shortened life expectancies and lung diseases among auto workers. And, and many white auto workers suffer from the problems too, but, but auto workers of color suffered more because of racism and job discrimination. And that was another way in which the New Deal's advance in labor rights was limited by discrimination. Jumping into the 70s, um, in 1976, a, a group of activists um, met for a conference titled Working for Environmental and Economic Justice in Black Lake, Michigan, at the UAW Conference Center. The attendance were wide-ranging, including civil rights leaders, environmental activists, government representatives, um, union representatives, and the press. You write, uh, in quotes, the Black Lake Conference emerged from a series of coalition-building efforts among labor, environmental, and civil rights activists in the 1970s. During this period, those who sought to bridge the divide between these social movements faced a growing structural dilemma, close quotes. Uh, could you please uh, talk a bit about that? Uh, what's going on in the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, um, and American politics bro broadly that's right. leading to this moment of these groups uh, to come together? Yeah, so um, the period between the late 60s and the early 70s sees this huge upsurge in the U.S. environmental movement. You have something like 20 million Americans participating in the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970. And as, as you alluded to, Ramya, there's obviously other major social movements in the time. You know, you obviously have the civil rights movement, women's liberation movement, 
uh, in the anti-war movement, um, you know, gay liberation, all sorts of different movements are kind of taking off in this period in U.S. history. Um, and environmentalism is one of them, right? There are major protests that are happening um, against oil spills and smog and polluted air, um, against um, unsafe working conditions and so forth. And there are efforts to create coalitions between a number of different labor unions and environmental groups in this period. So like the United Farm Workers, for example, worked with the Environmental Defense Fund to try to get DDT banned because it was poisoning farm workers as well as harming wildlife in agricultural areas. Uh, the Oil, Chemical and Atomic Workers Union also worked with activists um, addressing the environmental hazards of the oil industry in some cases or the, uh, you know, uh, uranium mining industry. Steelworkers in Pittsburgh, in some cases, collaborate with environmentalists around issues of pollution from steel mills in places like Gary, Indiana, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So the, the United Auto Workers are at the forefront of those coalition efforts. The United Auto Workers funded the first Earth Day. They contributed funding. Um, they supported a group called Environmental Action. Uh, UAW President Walter Ruther was a strong advocate of environmental pollution control laws and in conservation. The, the, the union had had a conservation department going back to the 19, uh, 19, late 1930s, 1940s that supported things like recreation programs for auto workers and their families. But what happens in the late 60s and early 70s is the UAW is involved in local environmental organizing. In 1969, there's an organization called the Downriver Anti-Pollution League that worked with multiple UAW locals and environmental groups to address the really terrible pollution problems in the downriver suburbs of Detroit, where you have, you know, the Rouge and Great Lakes Steel and Zug Island and all these plants that are, you know, dumping huge amounts of pollution into the river and creating a lot of air pollution problems as well. So the UIW was involved in local environmental organizing in Detroit as well as nationally. Now, the problem is that across the country in this period, heavy industry and big corporations respond to the creation of the EPA, the passage of the Clean Air and Water Acts, and the creation of OSHA by threatening to close factories and lay off workers. So industry adopts a tactic that Ralph Nader called environmental blackmail. And they essentially tell local governments, they tell workers in their unions, they tell members of Congress, uh, basically, if you force us to clean up our pollution, we're gonna have to cut jobs. It has to be jobs versus the environment. And they're already threatening to do this as early as the late 60s and early 70s. And this is worsened by deindustrialization. You already have the beginning of the auto industry decentralizing out of Detroit after World War II. They're beginning to move plants from the city and entering suburbs to exurbs, rural areas, and ultimately to Mexico and China, although it will take a long time, but, but it's starting in the 50s and 60s. Then, of course, you have the energy crisis in 1973 caused by the OPEC oil embargo, and a lot of Americans don't want to buy these huge cars produced by the Detroit manufacturers and are more interested in compact cars produced by Japanese and German manufacturers. And so the, the big three automakers lay off hundreds of thousands of auto workers in the mid seventies. And so the UAW is beginning to face a lot of pressure. Uh, they want to support the environmental problems and, and, and they share with the environmental groups an understanding that pollution is a hazard to public health. It's a major hazard to auto workers, right? Pollution. At the same time, the auto workers need the jobs in the factories. And if they're forced to choose between their paycheck and their health, oftentimes they'll choose their paycheck because, you know, it might take 20 years to get cancer or some other lung disease from working in a factory. But if you lose your paycheck, you're out on the street next week and, and your family will starve. So auto workers are forced to prioritize the paycheck over their long term health. Right. So. 
there are debates about how to overcome this jobs environment dilemma. And one of the more innovative responses is this conference that Ramya mentioned um, called the Working for Environmental Economic Justice and Jobs in May 1976. And the UAW hosted um, some 300 activists and delegates from different organizations. And there were people from civil rights groups, people from various labor unions, various environmental groups, women's rights organizations, uh, Native American organizations. And they brought them to this uh, place, um, the Black Lake Center, um, which had been created by Walter Ruther. It was kind of his dream project at the end of his life before his death in a plane crash in 1970 to this place in Onaway, Michigan, north of Detroit. And it's this kind of like beautiful wooded resort with solar panels and windmills um, where they had done union nature education. And they bring these people together to debate. And basically, the one of the big takeaways from that conference was the need for full employment legislation. And many of the activists at the conference supported something called the Humphrey Hawkins Bill, uh, which would have created uh, a national office of full employment, and it would have enacted New Deal-style uh, uh, public works programs and things like solar energy and conservation. And well, there were many proposals, but the idea was to lower the national unemployment rate to 3% through a huge build out of the public sector. Um, and many activists thought, you know, if we had something like this, it could undercut the jobs versus the environment strategy because there would be more alternative employment opportunities, for example, for workers. And it could help revitalize the, the tax base of cities that were losing investment due to deindustrialization and suburban flight. But what ends up happening, of course, is this legislation is basically gutted in Congress through attacks by corporate lobbyists and political conservatives and the Republican Party, as well as more moderate Democrats. And so ultimately, the, the bill is passed in a very weakened form and full employment legislation really never comes to pass. And in the late 70s, there's increasing pressure for deregulation, austerity, and you have this huge increase in corporate lobbying. And ultimately, the political center of gravity will shift in a conservative direction beginning under Carter, but especially with Ronald Reagan. And, and that coupled with deindustrialization um, and sort of the ongoing um, movement of population into suburbia out of the inner city will really weaken Detroit's fiscal base and it will make it harder for unions like the UAW to ally with environmental groups. Because you know the UAW will see its membership absolutely decline. Something like the UAW loses like two thirds of its members between 1979 and 2008. The union had a million and a half members in 1979. The UAW only has less than 500,000 members left by 2008. And plant closures and deindustrialization have this catastrophic impact on the industrial unions. And the UAW is kind of exhibit A of that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it puts a huge strain on these sorts of coalition efforts. As I was reading this, I sort of was speeding up. You know, your book sort of paces itself in a way that you sort of mm -hmm. you're, you're brought into it. Then you can tell like you're really picking up steam in the later sections of the book. Um, because you can see this, right? Like deindustrialization, as you talked about, and, and the the political economy that goes along with that is is central to sort of the 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 modern history of Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. The diminished power of labor accompanied mm -hmm. with the outmigration or automation of jobs, the privatization of municipal services. These all had disastrous impacts on the health of Detroiters, right? As, as well mm -hmm. as the democratic oversight of basic city operations. Um, you note that these changes had, as I said, right, these overwhelming negative health impacts on low income residents, um, residents of color, women and children. You know, first of all, I'm just really impressed how you like weave these histories together. This, this is uh, not easy stuff. So just so kudos to you on that for sort of like narrating this. Um, but, you know, 
perhaps you could just explain a little bit more, you know, how deindustrialization, neoliberal fiscal and regulatory policies and metropolitan segregation uh, shaped Detroit in the closing decades of the 20th century. Sure. Right. So <clears throat> some of this, of course, has been covered by other scholars. I mean, um, Thomas Segrew's mm-hmm. and widely read book, Origins of the Urban Crisis, shows how deindustrialization of white flight long predated the 1967 Detroit Rebellion. There's this narrative that one still hears in some quarters that you know the city's uh, decline begins in 1967 and they try to blame the riot or rebellion, depending on who you ask, for the city's decline. And Segru really demolishes that myth by showing how both white flight and deindustrialization long predate 1967, mm-hmm. right? Um, and overall, the city loses over 300,000 manufacturing jobs after World War II, and over 100,000 are lost in the 50s and early 60s. And you know, the hundreds of thousands of whites are already moving to the suburbs in the 1950s and early 60s. So that story is pretty well established already in the way in which this sort of urban crisis associated with um, you know, disinvestment and increasing urban poverty surrounded by relative suburban affluence with some exceptions um, is already in place. However, most of that scholarship doesn't pay much attention to the environmental side. And my book connects those phenomena to the environmental problems. And it also takes the story closer up to the present than, for example, Segru does. So this is how I would put it. Um, those trends of deindustrialization and white flight continue more or less unabated after 1967. They continue through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You have ongoing white flight, coupled to a limited degree with middle-class black flight by the 80s and 90s into places like Southfield and Oak Park and some entering suburbs. But it's predominantly white flight, and it continues through the end of the 20th century. So Detroit goes from a city that had been about 10% African-American in the 30s to 75 to 80% African-American by the end of the 20th century, right? And it's surrounded by these suburbs, most of which are over 95% white. Um, there are some black enclaves in, in some Detroit suburbs like Southfield. And of course, as we know, Dearborn ultimately which had been this kind of citadel of white supremacy and segregation in the era of Mayor Orville Hubbard, will become a major center for Arab-American uh, communities uh, later. Nonetheless, you, so the, the white flight continues, the deindustrialization continues, and the city's manufacturing base is just whittled down more and more and more with each passing decade. Um, and that, those things themselves create environmental hazards, right? The, the population loss to suburbia means more vacant houses, and the vacant houses mean more peeling lead paint, more fire hazards. And then, of course, the deindustrialization means that you have um, tens of thousands of brownfield sites littered across the city and the city can't afford to clean them up. It can cost over $100 million to, to just remediate the soil for one abandoned auto factory. Right. So you have these brownfield sites that are full of like drums of toxic chemicals and heavy lead copper, uh, mercury, and other kinds of toxic heavy metals in the soil and asbestos and old building materials and so forth. And they're just allowed to sort of sit there by their former corporate owners or they're sold off to various uh, developers and holding companies and allowed to oftentimes pose certain kinds of risks to surrounding communities. But then what leads to the water crisis in the 21st century, I argue in my book, are these policies that are sometimes called neoliberal. Now, the term neoliberal is probably overused and it's become sort of a notorious buzzword or term of jargon in academia. But very specifically, I'm talking about um, policies like deregulation, um, so-called welfare reform or cutting the welfare state, privatization and austerity. 
And I specifically show in the last third of my book how those policies led to environmental disasters in the city, right? And I argue, you know, you don't get to the mass water shutoffs in the early 2000s or the Flint water crisis without these sorts of policies. Mm -hmm. uh, because in the case of financial deregulation, what you have are these neighborhoods that had been historically redlined by banks because of housing discrimination, where it was hard for African-Americans to get home loans. But then with financial deregulation in the 90s and 2000s, those same neighborhoods become attractive marketing opportunities for subprime mortgages. And you have increasingly deregulated Wall Street banks that are selling these dangerous financial products like so-called adjustable rate mortgages. And the banks are merging together to form so-called too-big-to-fail banks. And so when they make all these risky bets on toxic subprime assets and then they fail, it imperils the whole U.S. and to some extent global financial system. And you have the deregulation of the swaps and derivatives market, which lead some banks, for example, to sell so-called interest rate swaps to Detroit and to the city's water department. And I show how that contributed directly to the debt crisis of the city and the debt crisis of the city's water department. This is also exacerbated by the corruption of Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. But those who say Detroit's problems all ca are caused by Kilpatrick's corruption often neglect these other factors, right? And I, I specifically show how financial deregulation contributes to the city's debt, to the water department's debt, which in turn forced the city to impose austerity policies, continuously cutting services mm -hmm. to pay its debt to the banks, and also adopting more stringent policies on, for example, water users who fall behind on their bills. So the city, for example, imposed a new policy in 2014 where anybody who owes more than $150 on their water bill will have their water shut off. Well, that's about 100,000 people. And you're talking about shutting off water um, to this huge percentage of the city's population who are overwhelmingly poor people, um, overwhelmingly African-American, disproportionately disabled people, elderly people, and so forth, forced to live without running water. Also, in addition to financial deregulation and the way it contributes to debt and the pressure for austerity from the city's creditors, which is very intense, you also have the shredding of the welfare state. Um, you have the elimination of the AFDC program under President Clinton and then under Republican Governor John Engler, um, welfare reform leads to the elimination of something called the vendor pay program, where basically the state cuts back utility assistance for poor people who are behind on their utility bills. And that in turn makes it easier for people to have their gas turned off, their electricity turned off or their water turned off. And again, we're talking about the poorest people in the city, right? And not having water, of course, leads to a public health disaster. It means you can't wash your hands, you can't flush your toilet, you can't cook and bathe properly. And it increases the risk of things like infectious disease. And I would also argue COVID, although you know the, the data is not really in on that, but, but nonetheless. So, so we've got financial deregulation, welfare reform. Um, and then also I make it the case that privatization contributed to environmental problems as well. For example, the city uh, cuts its lead abatement program in 2012, partly because of these austerity pressures and essentially privatizes the health department and outsources all of these municipal functions to private contractors. And the same thing happens in Flint. In Flint, um, water testing at the water at the suit at the water treatment plant is outsourced to private contractors like Veolia and Lockwood Andrews and Newnham. And that contributes directly to the Flint water crisis in the Detroit public schools. The maintenance workers are largely laid off and they're replaced with private contractors who do substandard work that contributes to a water crisis in the schools. Right. So what you see with privatization is typically a decline in services. 
and increased risk of disasters, which is what happens in Flint with the water crisis. And it's what happened, I would argue, in the Detroit public schools with the huge cutbacks in maintenance in the buildings. Right. So all these policies make the problems created by deindustrialization of white flight after World War II much worse. And, and, and while you can blame someone like Kwame Kilpatrick, you also have to look at these, the impact of these much larger policies enacted over a longer period of time. And, and it is impossible to talk about the 2008 recession, um, or I guess to not talk about the 2008 recession when talking about the broader economic, political and environmental history of Detroit. Right, um, right. You know, when one, con- when one considers um, the history that you just shared about uh, neoliberalization um, of Detroit, um, its water, energy, city services, schools, right, we can begin to see how this will come crumbling down in 2008. And so how does this recession further exacerbate the environmental inequities in Detroit? And how did political responses, most notably Governor Schneider's undemocratic um, emergency managers, shape and continue to shape Detroit in the last decade? Right. So the role of the state in all of this is inseparable from the phenomena that I just discussed. The city's debt, which, as I argued, was exacerbated by policies like deregulation, as well as the long term consequences of population loss and disinvestment, in turn, enable the state of Michigan to take over both Detroit and Flint and place them under emergency managers. And emergency manager laws were also expanded by the Republican-controlled state legislature in this period. Emergency managers were given the power to, for example, break union contracts, um, to sell off and privatize parts of city governments, Mm -hmm. uh, even to lock members of city council out of city hall and freeze their email accounts. So Emergency managers were given this enormous amount of power to take over places like Flint and Detroit to take over the school system. And what's their job? Their job is essentially to impose austerity measures, which are so unpopular that mayors and city council members couldn't ram them through. And the whole point of emergency management, at least I would argue, is to impose austerity in a more radical fashion that democratically elected public officials are unlikely to do. Because, of course, Public officials want to get reelected, and there's only so much you can cut in terms of public services or so much you can do in terms of breaking union contracts before you'll create a political backlash. Mm-hmm. So in taking over these cities, the state of Michigan is able to disregard the will of voters and municipal workers completely and simply impose more ruthless policies than had been the case before. And ostensibly, this is all because of sound fiscal management. But as we see, it leads to catastrophe. Certainly, you know. It's no coincidence that the Flint water crisis happened under emergency managers, right? Mm-hmm. It's no coincidence that the, the water crisis in the Detroit public schools also happened under an emergency manager mm-hmm. because they really prioritize budget cuts and austerity over health and safety and the protection mm-hmm. of public health. And I think that this is manifestly demonstrated both in the case of Detroit and Flint. And also I have to say too that these are overwhelmingly African-American populations, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, a history of electoral disenfranchisement of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Because of these emergency manager laws, half of Michigan's African-American population was deprived of local self-government mm-hmm. by 2014. And I would argue that that has uncomfortable echoes with the history of disenfranchisement of African-Americans. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that the state of Michigan would have done that to predominantly white populations. I think only mm-hmm. 2% of white residents in Michigan 
uh, were similarly placed under emergency managers. Um, well, you know, before we close out, uh, Josiah, and thank you for this great conversation. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you think listeners of Heartland History should take away from toxic debt? You know, how should we use this history to think more broadly, uh, more deeply about the history of Detroit uh, and, and maybe the American Midwest um, as well? Thank you. Yeah. There are a lot of different ways I could answer that question. So in some ways, I'm trying to bring the Midwest and the Rust Belt into environmental justice conversations. Mm-hmm. Narratives about the history of the movement often leave out the Rust Belt. And I wanted to bring Detroit into that, although I have to acknowledge the work of other scholars for you know Detroit, people like Brandon Ward, Joseph C. Aldella, or other cities in the Midwest, uh, Robert Gielli, uh, David Pello have also done important work on places like Chicago, St. Louis, mm-hmm. Baltimore. Uh, but nonetheless, I think Detroit's often left out and I wanted to bring Detroit in. More broadly than that, um, my book is not just a litany of problems and critiques. I actually think there are some potential um, usable, uh, I, the term usable past is notorious among historians, but I, I think there is a usable past here for those who want to address these problems today. So. Before, when I was talking about the New Deal, I noted that it had some positive as well as negative features from the perspective Mm -hmm. of environmental equity. So on the positive side, I argued that that included increased public investment in infrastructure, which was overdue by the 1930s, um, higher taxes on the wealthy and big corporations, which weren't paying their fair share in the view of many progressives of the time, an expanded social safety net to make sure fewer poor people would fall through the cracks into destitution, Um, and increased rights for workers. And those were positives that happened in the New Deal. So in the epilogue, I I show how uh, advocates of the Green New Deal call for building on those positive aspects of the older New Deal and linking it both to racial equity, which was a missing component of the original New Deal, but also environmental sustainability uh, via, for example, rebuilding crumbling infrastructure, uh, building out renewable energy, weatherizing buildings, cleaning up brownfield sites. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of precedents for public policies that can successfully reduce poverty as well as improve public health. Um, and they can, I would argue, be you know combined with racial equity and environmental sustainability. And I think there are activists in many of the organizations I write about in the book and highlight, particularly in the epilogue, who are working to do that. Um, And my book records decades of activism, and it does show lots of setbacks, um, and it shows the enormity of many of the problems in Detroit, which are typical of many communities, both urban and some suburban and rural across the U.S., to say nothing of around the world. Um, But it does show activists have won some victories. Um, Even they're often long delayed, they're often partial, they're certainly vulnerable to reversal. But there have been successes in the past and they do provide some guidance for those seeking to address these problems in the future. So I think there's a there's a hope, a hopeful um, takeaway from the book in that regard. And I would maybe conclude by just noting, you know, history can explain how we got to where we are and it can enable a more informed discussion about how to solve our contemporary problems. I completely agree. That's what a great way to end it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Josiah, thank you so much uh, for joining us here. This was a really great conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Ramya and Camden. Really appreciated it. Great questions.